We're going to be in the book of Hebrews again this morning, and before we get there, I'd like to begin our time reading a few scripture passages I think will help set the tone for what we're about to hear from Hebrews chapter 6. I've put them on the screen behind me just in case you want to see them as I read them. We'll start first with Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 33. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. If you accept circumcision, and he's saying here in the argument, if you require circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Philippians chapter 3, last verse. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Some have called Jonathan Edwards one of the greatest theologians that America has ever seen. Jonathan Edwards lived a couple hundred years ago in the New England area. He was actually excommunicated and church disciplined from his church, although I don't think he should have been. But one of the things he said about the passage I just read in Philippians chapter 3, he said, here you see Paul is very careful unless he should fall away. Notice that he did not say, I'm safe. I'm sure I will never be lost. Sadly, though, many think because they suppose themselves to be converted that they have nothing to do with the threatenings of God's word. So that when they hear them, they hear them as things which belong only to other people, but not for themselves. And therefore, when they hear awakening sermons about the awful things that God threatens, they do not hear them, but only think of others. Friends, this morning I want to ask you, when you heard these scriptures, were you thinking they applied to you? Or did you have someone else in mind? Who are you going to be more like? Paul, forgetting what was in the past straining and pressing forward for the prize? Or will you be like those that Jonathan Edwards describes? I'm safe. I can coast. My hope and prayer is that none of us would be in that situation. The stakes are too high. The matters we will be looking at in Hebrews chapter 6 are far too serious and important for any one of you to leave and think that this passage is not for you. So I want to just pause and pray once more to ask God to help us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, please come and help us. Help me to be speaking clearly your words and not words of my own invention or the ideas and thoughts of theologians or men, but the word of God. Help me not to lead this congregation and the visitors here this morning astray. Help me to divide the word of truth faithfully and accurately. 
And Father, I pray for all of us who are hearing this word, myself included, that we would be hearers of this word, that you'd give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, a mind to believe. We want to confess our humility and our desperate need for your Spirit's help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And again, this can be found on page 1003 in these black Bibles that are around you. As you're turning there in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, I want to let you know that I'm more than happy for all of the Scripture passages that you will see this morning, which there will be many more on the screen behind me, and even my notes that are in front of me. If you want to just not take notes if that would maybe potentially be a distraction, just like, oh, I missed that, or well, just don't. I'll send you my notes. You can just listen. Now, if for you, you think that, no, actually, note-taking will help me not fall asleep, then by all means, do not fall asleep and take notes. So there's no requirements or rules here. Just I'm offering that as a help to all of you. So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt." If you do not already know, these three verses have caused lots of trouble for Christians in the last 2,000 years since they were written. Some Christians have read these passages of Scripture and have concluded that Christians can lose their salvation as they read these words being fallen away. Others think that this has nothing to do with salvation. It talks about falling away from grace and losing a reward in heaven well, still others debate quite vigorously that verses 4 and 5, some think, are describing true Christians, and others thinking that these are fake, hypocritical Christians in the church, but never truly been born again. On top of all that, there are these interesting statements, if not sobering, about thinking about crucifying Jesus all over again, holding him in contempt. One of the most famous preachers in London, England, in the last hundred years was a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a doctor because he was first a physician. He would practice medicine. And just as his medical career was about to get started, he was about to be rich and make lots of money, he threw it all away to all of his peers, kind of, what are you doing, sort of response. And he said, I want to go into the ministry and preach God's word. He had a very fruitful ministry in London, and at the end of it, he said, over the course of the last 35 to 40 years, more Christians have struggled with their faith because of misunderstanding Hebrews 6 than probably any other passage of Scripture. He said, in my experience, it's not that this is the hardest passage in Scripture to interpret. I don't believe it is. There are much harder passages than this one. It's that this passage of Scripture has had, for whatever reason, a unique power that when misunderstood to unsettle the heart's of genuine believers. Friends, I would hope and pray that that would not happen to any of you this morning. As we will quickly see, the aim of this passage is not to take Christians who are genuine Christians and shake their faith up to make them doubting and leaving. Am I really a Christian? In fact, the point of this passage is to help you persevere, give you assurance and confidence and boldness in our Savior. So my prayer would be that by the end of this message, that will be its effect on you if, in fact, you are a Christian. However, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, this may or may not be the best time for you to visit Embassy Church on a Sunday morning. This is kind of like, hey, let's not walk in on the kiddie pool. Let's dive into the deep end. And so here you are, diving into the deep end. And if you have questions or comments, I'd be more than happy to try and help you understand things. But please do try and pay attention. What is the main teaching of Christianity? What is the gospel? What does it mean to be a Christian? I hope that you would gain some lessons about that from this message. I want to try and ask three very basic questions to help us walk through this text and hopefully answer some of these debates and struggles and issues that are with this text. I'm going to give you all three right now. Does this passage and our understanding of it 
Does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Do we have any contradictions about how we understand this with the rest of the Bible? We need to first, I think, cover that step. Secondly, we're going to ask the question, does it fit with the rest of the book of Hebrews? Does your understanding of this passage flow with the rest of what we have seen already and will see in the book of Hebrews? And thirdly, does it then fit with the immediate context? Do the words themselves and the paragraphs and the arguments, does your understanding fit with the Bible, the book, and then the passage itself? That's how we're going to take it wider and then go in deeper. So first, let's ask the question, does your understanding of what I just read fit with the overarching view of the Bible? I begin with this question because I think we can very quickly rule out one of the common interpretations that was already mentioned. It seems very clear that reading much of the Bible that we can quickly rule out, Christians can't lose their salvation, friends. That's ridiculous. I mean, it might seem at a first glance or reading that, oh, oh, these are people who are genuinely Christians, and then they fall away, and they can't be restored back to repentance. That language seems like a Christian who falls away, and okay, so they're not a Christian anymore. But when we read the rest of the Bible, we know that there's other passages of Scripture that are just crystal clear on this issue, that God keeps Christians It's not so much that they're so great to keep themselves, but that it's because of God's sovereign mercy, He keeps those who He saves. So one thing I want you to keep in mind is that if you ever get stuck, like let's say you're reading the Bible and you're studying the Bible, and you're like, ah, this is confusing. I'm not sure. What should I do with this? Whether the passage itself or the Bible in general, start with the things that you know. Start with the things that are clear. And then start moving into the things that you're less clear on until you get to the rub of the issue. There's a sense to which I think we can do that this morning. We read the whole Bible and we just get these clear statements about how God keeps his children. So Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul tells this church in Philippi, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. I'm sure he will do what? There was a work that was started and he will finish that work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Again, Paul addressing a church, and in the beginning of his introduction, he says, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, and you'll be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And probably one of our famous, popular, best passages to go to on this topic would be John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep, this is Jesus, speaking and says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. You see, all of the other interpretations of this passage at least say things that are generally true but they're not saying what this passage is saying. What we just ruled out was that this passage is not saying you can lose your salvation. That's just not generally true. That doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. We we come to odds if we say, well, someone can lose their salvation. But every other interpretation that has been given on this passage could be generally true. They don't believe you can lose your salvation, but maybe they're not saying what this text is saying. The idea of losing your salvation in the minds of some is not an option, but what they think this is saying isn't, in fact, what it is saying. But before we get on to other interpretations, let's just pause and enjoy the fact that our Father has a strong, omnipotent, keeping hand. He knows His children, and He holds them, and there's nothing Nothing in the whole universe, not even your own will and soul that can budge yourself out of that hand. He is faithful to keep you. Friend, you should rejoice with great joy knowing that our God does not just save, He keeps. He finishes what He starts. He's greater than anyone in this room. He's greater than any opposition or evil or sin neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, no powers nor height or depth, or anything else in all of creation, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's the great new modern hymn that we sing quite regularly here at Embassy. It finishes, no guilt in life, 
no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to my final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, there, in that truth, I'll stand. Friend, are you standing this morning in the sovereign power of God to save and to keep you to the end? This is the foundation for your perseverance. You need to know that this is not ultimately dependent on your moral performance. Your salvation wasn't dependent on your moral performance, and your sanctification and your perseverance is not ultimately dependent. He woos. He sends his spirit. He draws people to himself. Why are you even here this morning? Because God is keeping you. Because a spirit is alive inside of you, especially if you're a Christian, and he's drawing you to his word, and he wants you to sit under that word so you be encouraged and built up and strengthened by that word. Friends, be encouraged this morning by God's keeping, saving strength. But if they didn't lose their salvation, if that's not what this passage is saying, then what is being described here when it says they fell away, if it's not losing salvation? One of the passages, again, that's really clear is 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. And this, I think, is the place to go, not Hebrews 6 to describe what happens when people who are in the church and then leave the church or say, I was a Christian and then now I'm not a Christian. I don't think Hebrews 6 is the place to go. This is not addressing that situation. What is addressing that situation is 1 John 2, 19. And listen as it says, they went out from us. And those are those who have been deceived. If you read the context of chapter 2, they've been deceived by people who are anti-Christ's. They're anti-Jesus and his message and his teaching, and they're going around and they're deceiving people about who Jesus is. And those people that were deceived and follow that false teaching, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are all not of us. Don't you see how clear that is? If someone is in the church, they're professing to be a Christian, And then they say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. They are, by that profession of not believing in Jesus anymore, showing they never were a Christian to begin with. It's just really clear in the scriptures. That passage and so many others teach that people who are truly saved will, because of God's sovereign grace, they will persevere to the end. Because he keeps his children. He doesn't let them go. Consider the words of Jesus from the book of John. John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. True disciples are people who abide and remain and stay in the word of God. John chapter 15, verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You will know that you're truly a disciple if you abide in his word, and that you bear much fruit. Failure to abide and failure to have fruit shows that you never were a disciple because that's what disciples are. It's similar to what we see in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, verses 9 through 20. I'm just going to look at a couple of the instances where Jesus describes a parable of a man sowing some grain on a field and some of it lands on the ground and some of it lands in a rocky soil and some of it lands in soil that then gets choked up by weeds and then some of it lands on good soil. And when asked what this parable meant, he said, well, the sower is sowing the word of God. And then when he skips to the second soil, he talks about that was sown on rocky ground. He says, those ones, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. But those that were sown on the good soil are those that hear the word of God and accept it and bear fruit. So what I think we can glean from this passage is that only those seeds that fall on good soil are those that we would call truly born-again Christians, faithful Christians. Those that spring up for a little bit and then because of testing, trials, persecutions, ah, it's getting difficult to be a Christian. I don't want to have to do these things. It was easier being a non-Christian. Let me just throw it away. Well, you never really became a Christian. So this is a clear teaching in Scripture. And so what people do is take that teaching in Scripture that 
people who do not persevere to the end, who fall away or fall short of believing in Jesus till the end of their life, well, they were false professors, they were false Christians, they were hypocrites, and then for one reason or another, they threw away their faith. That must be what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Now, I want you to know that I have taught Hebrews before, and when I taught Hebrews before, that is exactly what I said this passage is saying. And so I'm thinking that it could be very well that many of you in this room, that you're like, yeah, that sounds exactly like what's happening here. But upon further review, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I think that's a true teaching from other passages of Scripture. But here in Hebrews chapter 6, I don't believe we find false professors who he's addressing. I think he's talking about Christians. I don't think it matches with our second question. Does it fit with the rest of the book that this is a group of false Christians who haven't truly been Christian and then fall away? It doesn't line up. So let's look at why that doesn't line up. Many would say that in that line of thinking, that Hebrews 6 is simply saying that they are like that rocky soil because we know in Hebrews chapter 10 that they too, the Hebrews, were facing persecution, just like the rocky soil in our parable that we just read. And it says that they were facing persecution, and so after being enlightened by the seed of God's word and tasting the heavenly gift and sharing in the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come, they immediately threw away all of their faith because of that persecution. That fits in some ways with the idea that there is persecution in Hebrews, and so maybe these people are just like that. But I'm going to give you three reasons why I don't think we should think about this passage in that way. Reason number one is I want you to notice that the whole book of Hebrews is addressed to Christians and not different categories of Christians or non-Christians. The whole book from beginning to end is addressed to Christians. In particular, I want you to notice how all the warning passages, not just Hebrews 6, but all the warning passages in Hebrews specifically talk about Christians. So the first warning passage that you'll see is from chapter 2 that we've already looked at. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, after talking much about how the glorious Jesus is, greater than all the angels, he says, therefore, pay more careful attention to the things that you've heard, lest you would drift away from it. And if the message that was given through the law of Moses by the angels was proved reliable because of the punishment that they received, then how much more? And then he says this statement here in verse 3 of chapter 2. How will then we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Who is he talking about here in chapter 2? How will we escape the judgment of God if we neglect this great salvation. The warning here is not to some group of non-Christians or false professors, but he includes himself, the writer. Do you think that the writer is a false professor? I don't. It doesn't seem any reason to think he is. Chapter 3, verse 12 is, is the second warning that we've already seen in this book. And he says, take care, and then if, if it couldn't be more clear, take care, brothers. It's almost always, 90% of the time, brothers being used in this sort of context is talking about Christian brothers and sisters. So take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. He's giving them an exhortation of helping each other that they're not deceived, but he's also warning them, take care, brothers. Not my false professing brothers, the brothers of the faith. I don't want to see you fall away. If we skip forward past chapter 6 to chapter 10, we're going to see in the coming weeks and months another stern and sobering warning. In chapter 10, verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, so here we have people who have received the knowledge of the truth, but they keep going on sinning, he says, there will no longer remain a sacrifice of sins for them but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But again, notice the language, for if we, he puts himself again in this context, if we go on sinning, we who have received the knowledge of the truth. And finally, the last warning is chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. 
Here he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. And here he's referring to what we already saw about the wilderness wanderings. Did they escape the judgment? No, they did not. So then how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We have just looked at all four of them, and now the sixth, the fifth one is in chapter six. Why would we, if we're reading the whole book as a, a unit of thought, most scholars that I've come across say that this is a sermon. This isn't like a, a, a traditional letter. It was like this guy got up and preached, and that sermon was then recorded, and so that's why you see some theology, and then some exhortation and warning, and then some more theology, and then some exhortation and warning. It's a, it's a good pattern for preachers. And so this sermon is making the same point every single time. But if we take the view that these are false professors in chapter 6, well, then we got the warning in chapter 2, the warning in chapter 3. Okay, and then we've got this exception in chapter 6, and then back in chapter 10 and in 12, talking to a different audience. It, it doesn't make sense in my mind with the whole overview of the book of Hebrews and the message that he has been saying and will be saying. In fact, look specifically in your Bibles down at chapter 6, verse 1. Notice again the plural pronouns, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance, and then he goes on and lists out five, six things. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. Let us pursue maturity. I just warned you all that you were getting sluggish and lazy and immature like babies like a grown man going back and drinking from the mother's milk. This, this was the image that we saw last week. And he's saying, let us then, let's together, let's pursue maturity and move on in Christ. And then right after that, for it is impossible. And so he has in his mind, even in this chapter, we language, as he has had in mind in all the other warnings. So that's the first reason why I don't think this is talking about false professors but rather he's addressing the Christians who are there in the letter, in the letter to Hebrews. The second reason why I would not hold this to say it's false professors is I want you to notice the specific words used in chapter 6 and how they, some of them at least, are used elsewhere in Hebrews. So first, in chapter 6, verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Enlightened, okay, well, maybe he's just saying that they heard some of God's word and they actually haven't believed God's word. But friends, just turn over to chapter 10, verse 32, and you'll see, recall the former days that after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What is so strange is that people will take chapter 6 and this word enlightened, talking about people who have been enlightened, and say, this isn't actually a Christian. But then the same people will look at chapter 10 and say, well, this enlightened is a Christian. Well, how do you pick and choose? How come you say this one is and that one's not? I don't see the consistency even in the words themselves. Enlightened seems to be they were enlightened by the truth of God's word and they believed it. That's the way it's understood in chapter 10. I think that's the way we should understand it in chapter 6. The second word you see there is that they were enlightened and then they tasted the heavenly gift. Well, friends, what's the heavenly gift? What is the gift, the main gift that comes down from heaven? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's a gift of salvation. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you want to know, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to receive a gift of salvation, a heavenly one. God from heaven comes down to earth, and he is a gift for us. There is no works that you can do to try and appease God or make him happy or make him forgive your sins any more than what Jesus has already done for you on his death and resurrection. It's a gift so that no one would boast, so that none of you would think, well, I earned it. Well, I arrived to it. We're all just beggars saying, God, have mercy on my soul. That's what it means to be a Christian, and that's what he's referring to here. Tasted the heavenly gift, and then some say, well, tasted. Maybe he just kind of licked it, you know? He didn't, like, really drink it down and digest the heavenly gift. They just kind of had a little sip. How did the writer of Hebrews already in chapter 2 use this word taste? We do not want it to mean lick in that context. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, so that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. 
did Jesus just lick death on the cross? Or did he gulp down all of God's wrath and fury? Friends, I don't think we should take this word tasted as just a little taste. They have tasted. They have seen that the glory of God is good. And they have received the gift of salvation. They have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Thirdly, look at the next phrase. They have shared. They have partaken in the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations might say partaken. I think that that's a a helpful translation because when we look at that and we compare and contrast that with what we've seen in chapter 5, verse 13, for everyone who lives, and that's the word again, partaken. It's the same word you see here that says shared in chapter 6, verse 4. Shared in the Holy Spirit and live on milk is unskilled of the word of righteousness. For everyone who partakes on milk is unskilled since he is a child. This partaking of the milk that he is rebuking them for is not just, well, they're dabbling with the milk. No, he is sternly rebuking them. Quit drinking milk. Be a grown-up for once. Get onto some solid meat. So I think if in the context of the very words and the writer that the Hebrews uses these words, isn't there just something that's like, I read this and I'm thinking, this sounds and looks like a Christian, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit? How more specific could we be? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said when he preached on this passage of Scripture several years ago. Who are these people that are being spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 6? If you read a lot of the great theological writers, they assert that these persons are not Christians. They say that it represents a man who is just a Christian on the external side but it is not a portrait of a true believer. Now, it strikes me that they would not have said this unless maybe perhaps they had some sort of doctrine that they're trying to uphold. For I contest that a child that's reading this passage, they would say, well, these people seem like they're Christians. If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he could have done much better or used more explicit terms than the ones that are here. How can a man be said to have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and been a partaker of the Holy Spirit without being a child of God? Now, with all due respect to these learned theologians, and I do admire and love all of them, I just want to humbly conceive that they have allowed their judgments to be a little warped with this thing that they have said. Friends, I would agree with Charles Spurgeon here. I think that if that is your stance, it is a true teaching that's found in the Scriptures that people do taste, just a little taste of Christianity. They do get enlightened a little bit. They do appear in church for some time, but then over testing and and, and struggles and trials, they fall away and they prove they never were a Christian to begin with. That's a true teaching. That's okay if you hold that teaching and this interpretation here. You're not like heretical, like that would be bad to be a, a heretic. So that's fine for you to hold that, but friends, let's, let's actually believe what these words are saying. And I think if we look at a third and final thing, we will see why this is not speaking of false professors, as Spurgeon just said. So he said, first notice the way that all the warnings are addressed to Christians, and then notice the specificity of the words and how the writer of Hebrews used the words. And thirdly, let's notice how the author never once in the whole book says that somebody has in fact fallen away. I think if you get this point now, all of a sudden, ah, your mind might shift, especially if you were like I was and formerly thought, well, these are false professors. No, no, he never actually says somebody fell away from the faith. He's warning them not to fall away from the faith and hoping that they wouldn't, and so he gives this warning. In fact, if it couldn't be more crystal clear, he makes it crystal clear. Remember, we talked about the wider biblical context, and then we've been talking a lot now about the overarching context of Hebrews. And then we looked at some of the specific words of the passage, but I want you to see, friends, context is king. Let your understanding of verses 4 through 6 fit with verses 9 through 12. So let's start from verse 7 and get to 9 through 12. Chapter 6, verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So we see first here in verse 7 the word for, and this word for is saying, now here's an illustration of what I'm trying to communicate. 
God's word is like this rain and it's falling on a ground. And if that ground produces fruitfulness and perseverance over time, then that will be blessed by God. Verse 8 says, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. If the rain comes and falls down and it does not land and produce fruit, then it is worthless and will be burned. But what does he say in verse 9? Though we speak in this way about people being cursed and burned and being worthless, in this way we speak, but in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Isn't it interesting? He makes it explicitly clear he's not talking about people who have fallen away. In fact, no, we don't think anybody of you have fallen away. We feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Things that belong to salvation. As far as we can tell, he's saying in verse 10, God is a just God and he sees that you have fruit. You are in the category of verse 7 of chapter 6. You have heard the word of God and you are receiving the word of God and producing fruit. He sees your fruit, we see your fruit, so therefore we are confident of better things for you. Not curses, not thorns and thistles, but rather you love those, you love Christ, and God will not overlook any of those things. I do find it quite interesting that the reason he is confident of better things isn't their profession that they prayed a prayer one time when they were 10. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, we feel confident about these things because I remember when you got baptized. Or that day that you said, hey, I now want to be a Christian. He doesn't look backwards at their profession of faith. He looks at their present fruitfulness and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're struggling about, am I a Christian? Two things. One, don't necessarily put all of your hope in the fact that one day you prayed some prayer and said, God, forgive me of my sins. So, okay, I took care of that. I got baptized. I'm done. Look right now. Do you presently love and grow and want more of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in his gospel? Do you affirm that he is the risen Savior of the living and the dead? If that's true, then you're Christian this morning. Everyone who has faith in that gospel is, in fact, a Christian. Even if right now, as I'm saying those words, that's the first time you genuinely believe you're a Christian. Right now. Faith alone saves. Do you have faith? Today, do you hear his voice? And friends, you're a Christian. Second thing I want you to think about is if you're struggling with this idea of assurance, isn't it interesting that he uses the church the observations of other people to assure them that they are, in fact, Christians. I think this is one of the things we're missing the most in our Western American Christianity, this individual Christianity that's all about me. I can understand my soul and my, my, my position before Jesus better than anyone else. I have the determining understanding of my fate. I just don't see that in Scripture, friends. Do you realize that one of the best benefits for your assurance of salvation is the, the gathering of Christians who can see your life and give testimony to the fact, I think you're a Christian. I know you're struggling right now, but I'm seeing fruits. And in fact, one of the things I love to point out when people say, Pastor Phil, I was listening to your Hebrew sermons, and I'm wondering, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. The reason that you care about your salvation is a fruit that you probably are a Christian. Just think about that for a second non-Christian, without the Holy Spirit kind of people, they don't sit around wondering, oh, am I a Christian or not? That's, that's a sign of a Christian. So what we need in the church, this is, again, what we understand church membership to mean, is that we are gathering together and saying, as far as we can tell, we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We see that you have been enlightened by the Word of God, that you have tasted the heavenly gift, and we want to put our affirmation on you and our blessing to say, we think that there are better things for you, things that belong to salvation. 
Have you noticed that in the book of Hebrews, salvation is not a one-time event that happened when somebody prayed a prayer or got baptized, but rather it is something that happened and continues to happen and will finally be inherited when Jesus returns. That would also be another helpful way for you to, am I a Christian or not, or assurance issues? Do you understand salvation to be something that begins at the moment of faith and then progressively continues until Christ returns and that you finally fully inherit those things when you persevere to the end? These are the reasons why I think we should believe that this passage of Scripture is not referring to losing your salvation, nor is it talking about losing rewards, but is rather a stern and a intense warning, sobering warning to people who are drifting, who are immature, who are sluggish and lazy in their faith, who have been persecuted and have faced a hard struggle, and at first they responded with joy when they received the plundering of their properties and people were thrown in prison. They weren't phased, but as time has gone on, they're getting weaker. He says in chapter 12, I want to strengthen your feeble knees. You're shaking up there. I want, to, I want to help you get strong. You need endurance. That's what he's saying all through this book. That's what he's saying here in chapter 6. And he's doing it with a strong, intense warning. Some people will say at this moment, okay, I'm following you. But this makes no sense. If a genuine Christian can never fall away, why would you warn them about what happens when you fall away? I wonder if any of you have been wondering that as I've been going on and on. Some might say, well, maybe this is just some sort of hypothetical warning. It could never actually happen, so it's just like a, a rhetorical device to just like, hey, wake them up a little bit. Now, I do think he's trying to wake them up, but I don't think that this is a hypothetical warning. Just because the warning could never happen doesn't mean it's not a real warning. It's entirely consistent with the rest of Scripture now. Again, let's step back. Does it fit the rest of Scripture to have a warning, even though that warning could actually never happen because God promised it wouldn't happen? There's probably a dozen places we could go in Scripture, but I want to tell you a story, a story that's found in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 27. You don't need to turn there. I'll just summarize the story. The Apostle Paul is going around and preaching the gospel all over the Middle East, what we would call Middle East, Turkey, Asia Minor, all these places. At one point, he is caught in chapter 27 in a huge storm. And in the middle of that storm, God gives Paul a promise that he will be saved through the storm, him and all the 200-some passengers in the boat. Paul then tells them the next day, all of the worried, anxious sailors, Brothers, I want you to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed because last night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid. Paul, you need to stand before trial, before Caesar. And so God has graciously given you the lives of all who are sailing with you. Now there is a nice, wonderful promise in the middle of a raging storm. Read through Acts 27 and see the details of the fierceness of this storm and the way that these 200 men on the boat were very afraid of their lives. But what's so interesting is that if you keep reading that story, what happens next? In an attempt to escape from the ship, the, soul, the sailors decide, let's take a lifeboat and let, let it drop down into the sea and hopefully get to shore that way. Paul said to one of them, Unless these men stay with the ship, you will not be saved. Do not go on that lifeboat. Interesting, isn't it? God had previously already promised you will be saved. So why doesn't Paul just take a nap? Why does he just, well, that was helpful. I was getting a little worried we might die here. We don't need to do anything. I don't need to say anything. They can do whatever they want. God promised. I'm going to be kept. I'm going to be saved. This is not the way he responded at all, and nor should it be our response. Warnings are still appropriate, even if they could never possibly happen. Was God's promise not true that they would be saved? I believe it was true. An angel came down and told him to give him assurance you'd be saved. But the means by which they would be saved is if they stayed in the boat. So the warning was then used as the means to keep them saved. 
even though there was no possibility they would ever get out of that boat. God wouldn't let that happen, and he used the warning to make sure that they stayed in. Do you see how this works? Paul warns them, guys, if you get on that lifeboat, you're dead meat. You're done. Stay in the boat. So they did. They heeded the warning. It's a real warning, but it could have never happened because God already promised. Spurgeon again says this. Some say, well, if you cannot fall away, what is the use of putting the words if in all of these warnings in Hebrews? It's like a bugbear trying to frighten children or like a ghost that doesn't even exist. My learned friend, I just ask, who are you to reply against God in the wisdom of his word? If God has put these warnings in his word, then he has put them in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. First, O Christian, these warnings are put in to keep you from falling. God preserves his children from falling, but he keeps them by the use of specific means. And one of these means is to terrify you with warnings of his law, showing them that what would happen if you did fall away from the faith. It is like a deep cliff precipice. And what is the if, if he would inevitably be dashed to pieces? The best way from going down there is to warn them, don't go down the cliff. In fact, in some old castles, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas, which would kill anybody who went down into the cellar. So what does the tour guide say as they lead them through the castle? If you go down there, you will never come back alive. So who in their right mind thinks of going down into the cellar? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from even considering going down. Our friend puts away a cup of arsenic in front of us. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we would consider drinking it? No. He tells us the consequences so that we will not drink it. And so God, in the same way, says, my child... If you fall away, you will be dashed to pieces. And so what child who hears his father's voice does not respond with, Father, keep me, hold me, keep me from that precipice. I want to be safe in your arms. Friends, it leads the believer to greater dependence upon God, to a renewal of humility, so that we would stand as far away from that great gulf as we possibly could because we know that if we were to fall in it, that there would never be salvation for us again. Do you see how this works? Do you see how God uses means to keep us? This is the way it works in everyday life as he uses these examples. Let's sum this up. What the writer of Hebrews is simply trying to do is warn you of the danger of what would happen if you were to fall away. In fact, the King James Version actually uses that word if because it's in line with what we see all through the scriptures in Hebrews. A couple examples in chapter 2 and 3. How will you escape if you neglect a great salvation? And we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Or chapter 3, verse 14. You have come to share or partake. Same word we saw earlier. You will share and partake in Jesus Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do you know if you're a Christian as we've already made plain this morning, it is because you are currently, presently, right now, this moment, holding fast your confidence. That's how you know. If you completely reject Jesus Christ and go back to the Jewish law or any other teaching, then you would be acting like the Jews of Jesus' day who crucified him. They heard he was the Messiah. They heard he was the fulfillment of the law, but they called him a liar, a blasphemer, and they murdered him. You'd be making a mockery of the cross if you hear of the cross. You receive the cross and then reject it and say, this sacrifice is not sufficient for my sins. This is what this language here means when he says you'd be re-crucifying the Son of God all over again. Similarly, in chapter 10, he's going to say that you will, it'd be like trampling on God's blood. How much more serious could he be in this warning? Friends, I urge you, don't mock the cross. It's enough. Don't reject the cross. His death was the once and for all final sacrifice. And we are in Hebrews, so we can see in chapter 7, 8, and 9 that this sacrifice is sufficient to perfect you. 
you believe in Jesus, no matter what happens, and you keep on believing that he has already became a curse for you, if you reject Jesus, then you take the curse of God's judgment on yourself. These are our two options. Here we have this morning two groups of people, potentially. Hopefully we're all in the same category. It's those who have not rejected Jesus Christ. And instead, we have looked to Jesus on the cross and said that curse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8, the curse of the land that doesn't produce vegetation, thorns and thistles, deserves to be burned. We saw in our lives that's us. Have you seen that? Have you seen that God, he has been kind and gracious and he gave you what you did not deserve, a heavenly gift. And that heavenly gift was for Jesus Christ to take that very curse that you deserved because you did not produce fruit when you were born. You produced sin. Born in sin. And we've continued this pattern of sinning the rest of our lives. And the fruit of our lives is just further evidence of the truth of God's word that we have all fallen short of God's amazing glory and grace and therefore deserving of his judgment and his wrath and his curse. So have you received Jesus, the one who took that curse in chapter 6, verse 8? The thorns and thistles were placed on his head, literally, a crown of thorns, symbolizing the very curse in Genesis 3 that Joe read for us earlier. That curse was placed on Jesus so that you and I, we could receive this gift with salvation, as a free gift of salvation. If you believe it today, right now, this would be good confidence that you are, in fact, a Christian. Would you put your trust, believe with repentance and faith in Jesus alone? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for Jesus Christ and his sufficient blood, his sacrifice that is able to save us. God, we do confess that we have been prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so we want to ask that you would take our hearts, that you would seal them, that you would bind them to the God we love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.